CC. The crew recapped their trip to Collector's Universe in Southern California. Then they discussed the What's Mine Worth game. All this and more coming up now on a CC. Welcome to episode 42 of Sports Cards Culture. I'm Chris, here with Josh at Cardboard underscore Chronicles, Christina at Christina's PC, Nick at Stiff Arm Wax, and I'm at Chris underscore HOJ. Happy holidays to the hobby. We are back home now, but last week we were on site in Santa Ana, California, Collector's Universe headquarters. We met new colleagues, we toured PSA's massive grading facilities, and we recruited new researchers who will be joining Card Ladder in 2022. Josh, how did you enjoy your visit to Southern California? Oh, it was great. I love that area of the country. It's so nice there always. Um, you know, getting to see the faces of the people we're going to be working with is, is exciting. You know, I got to see Nat, got to see the leadership team. Uh, I got to see, you know, the technical people I'd be working with. And then we got to see, you know, all the internal workings of the company. Got to see some of the, you know, behind the scenes grading, which is, which is exciting. So overall, great trip. Christina, we received a guided tour of PSA's grading operation, which lasted about an hour. Uh, we received two. Two, true. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot to absorb. It reminded me of a science lab uh, because it was just it was cleanly, it was organized. The instruments and machinery being used were impressive, and there was just a lot of care and precision that the PSA employees obviously applied to their work. What were your impressions of PSA's grading facilities? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit overwhelming to see how many employees are verifying the card that a collector has submitted, then the imaging process and the the secondary verification uh and then it goes to the grading like there there's, there's a, more there's more uh vetting that happens after it's graded too right there's yes. just so many steps that the card goes yeah through. there are a lot of steps and it was it was really lots of double and triple checking mm-hmm. the quality assurance is at an all-time high would you like to answer this question instead uh, of me no Oh, okay. Um, No, it it was really fun and interesting. Uh, It was a blast to meet everyone and to be able to see how how the sausage is made at PSA. (laughs) Josh, is there anything to add to Christina's recap there of our tours of PSA? Yeah, I mean, there was um, there's a lot more to it than I than I pictured. You know, I think when you see the steps on your order, you just kind of assume that it's being done, and you're you don't really think too much about it. When you see it in person, you're like, wow, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of steps, like you guys pointed out. It kind of reminds me of of card ladder in a sense, in that like we we like overcheck things, right? Like we we really make sure we triple stamp, and they're doing the same thing there. And uh, it's nice to see that they haven't given up on that, given the, you know, the the demand for the speed that people want out of it is like, oh, yeah, get get the cards out faster, get this stuff going. But I saw a lot of care and and taking the steps, you know, at the proper timing. So that, that was my takeaway. Now, Christina, while we were there, mm-hmm. we conducted interviews of prospective new researchers for Card Ladder. And as Josh pointed out, PSA and Card Ladder, I think we both have very high standards of excellence. And PSA has been generous enough to allow us to steal some of their established members of their research team to join ours, and they'll be joining in 2022. What were your impressions of the candidates who applied to join our research team? I mean, I honestly was just blown away by every single one of them. Um, Their breadth of knowledge uh, for cards was just phenomenal, Um, and their passion rivaled our own. Um, and you know, they are 
some of the lucky few that get to make their living in this industry um and like that old old saying of like do what you love and you never work a day in your life like these are these are people who are living that so we ended up taking a the first cohort for the research team um which will be five researchers and um i just you know i'm excited to get their training underway and get them up and running and then you know move on to the next because we just we met so many uh talented individuals yeah with very impressive backgrounds prior to coming to psa as well as being you know very effective employees at PSA. I was very impressed as well. All right, Christina, um, what's my card worth? Uh, could you tell me, please? It's about $2 billion. $2 billion. okay. Maybe well, trillion. You know, a very fun part of collecting yeah. is evaluating what our personal collections are worth. When I've got my collection out, sometimes I just sit there and enjoy putting a value, a rough value to each card, and then I add them up in my head, and I say, oh, this is about what it's worth, and it's just fun. It's no way of knowing if it's actually right, but it's fun. All right, Josh, do you do this as well when you've got your collection out? Yeah, I always do it in my head. I sort of add them up. I, I do like rough numbers, and then at the end, I'll like subtract off like a certain percentage, accounting for like if I actually had to sell them and tax bill came and like all these. So I usually like at the very end, just and I'm pretty conservative along the way. I do it a lot. Um, <laughs> so, and it's like every time I do it, like I like there's some time that I believe that it's going to be a different number than it always is. I don't know why I keep doing it. It's always the same number. <laughs> All right. Now, what about you, Christina? When you've got the Maxi Cleaver PC out, are you estimating its value? Or how do you go about this? No. I'm looking at how pretty the cards are <laughs> and thinking about which one I need next to complete my collection. I'm not thinking about the value. Those cards are pretty, like priceless and worthless to me like in monetary sense um it's like the value that they have is the value of the joy that they bring all right fair enough so i I might be in the wrong uh field lots of different (laughs) lots of different points of view represented there well even if you don't (laughs) even if you don't value your own cards in your head you still need to know what the market values them at yeah. for when you buy them. Sure. Right? So you, it, you can't just you can't hit avoid bin it. on every single Maxi no. Kleba card. You can't, av- <laughs> you, <laughs> you can't avoid the market aspect of cards, even if you don't care about it after you get the card. You don't want to get ripped off. Okay. So if you own rare cards that sell infrequently and you are like me and Josh and not like you... <laughs> You have to find creative ways to keep a current estimate of the value of those cards because even if your specific card hasn't sold in a while, other similar cards probably have, and that can serve as a helpful guide for pricing your card. And then we have the card letter value algorithm, which offers a different way of estimating the price of a card, but it's far from perfect, and it's not intended to be a definitive statement of market value. Instead, it's a guide with a fully transparent methodology that relies on market data and player indexes. And collectors should evaluate the usefulness of card letter value on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes it's going to be better than other times. But in fact, there is no such thing as a definitive market value of a card. Just because a card sells on a certain date for a certain amount does not guarantee that the next copy will sell at that amount. Each sale involves a back and forth, and it involves a negotiation, whether it's competing with other bidders at auction or working with another party in a private transaction to settle on a mutually agreeable price. There are independent variables at play in each of these scenarios, 
that can produce outlier results from time to time, especially when it comes to rare cards. Josh, in your experience, how have people relied on things like card ladder value in order to figure out card prices? And how would you advise people to rely on things like card ladder value? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that use card ladder specifically in the algorithm we have. I've, I spoke with an individual at PSA and he was walking me through his, his way of, of valuing cards and he would take the last sale of a different player than the card of, that he had. And he would apply a multiplier between the two players. And he was saying that the multiplier is pretty consistent across. I thought that was interesting. So there's like a bunch of ways like that. And like you said, card ladder is just kind of one of card ladder estimate is kind of one of the ways to do it. And, you know, I just, I like the card ladder tool because it lets me do it automatically and I can have it on my screen and it can be automated and updated daily. And I don't have to worry about it because we all kind of do some sort of math in our heads, like you pointed out earlier. And we sort of, look at comps around the market and we we come up with like what are relative values you know compared to each other so again card ladder value is just kind of doing that math for you and it gives you a nice starting point how would i advise other people i would advise them to use it as an estimate as a start off point i think we've said that a few times in the show it, it's it all these numbers are just starting points especially when you get into the really high dollar really rare stuff you know as you're probably going to point out there's stuff that no matter what you come up no matter how close you feel it is no matter how accurate you feel your number is it can go 50% above that or 50% below in the open market. It just There's just so many factors. There's a bunch of stuff I saw you know, in public auction that went lower than I thought, and there's stuff that went higher, and it's like none of us actually know. <laughs> that's, that is, that's the truest words ever spoken in the hobby. None of us actually know. Christina, let's. what about yeah. from a different perspective? Okay. Uh, how do you figure out the price of a card when you're going to buy it? Um... I mean, I kind of like I'll look to see like in the sales history of card ladder, like if that card has sold before. Um, but really, most of the time, <laughs> it's going to sound awful. Um, I consider the price that is being asked uh, and I'm considering like taking into context like this is Maxi Kleba doesn't have a lot of cards. Um, like I'm not spending like Luca money on him but I mean if I want a one of one card um I kind of have to play ball with the person selling it because if someone else buys that I'm never seeing that card again like unless like they win a championship and he wins like sixth man of the year like that card is not coming up for sale again so um Sometimes you have to overpay for the cards you want. So they're just among the two of Christina and Josh, and and the uh, person that Josh mentioned, really the three of them, the three different approaches, very different approaches, in fact, you know, to figuring out how to price a card. And that's just three people of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who are transacting in sports cards on a regular basis. There's For every different person, there's a slightly different approach. Well, how do you do it? How do I do it? I don't, it's kind of a mix of all the three approaches that were said. Sometimes I do just say, what's it going to take to pry this out? If it's a super rare or a one-of-one one card, sometimes I'm going to look at multipliers across players. Uh, sometimes I'm going to look at market history and comps and player indexes and try and see if I can narrow in, home in, and pinpoint a value. It's, it, it really depends um, on the card in question. 
And, you know, as fun as it can be to try and figure out what our collections are worth, the What's Mine Worth game takes on a whole new dimension when people take it to a public forum like Instagram. (laughs) And as exhilarating as it can be to realize, hey, my collection has gone up in value because of a high-profile sale that just happened, it's probably wiser I've determined to just keep that to myself uh, rather than proclaim it to the rest of the world. But by the same token, I'm quite glad others don't do that because it is enlightening to see how collectors publicly use high-profile sales to reorient how they think about the value of their own cards. So one sale from last weekend that left some people scratching their heads was the 2018 National Treasures RPA 99 PSA 10 Auto 10 Luka Doncic, which sold for $780,000. That card, which is a Pop 4 in that particular condition, last sold for $584,000 in March, meaning it has increased nearly $200,000 in value over the last nine months. That's a percentage increase of 34%, which is roughly on par with the 26% growth that Card Ladder's high-end index has seen over the same time span. But here's where it gets interesting. A day after that Luca auction, Collectible, the fractional share entity, announced a buyout offer of $700,000 for a Steph Curry National Treasures RPA, except this one is a BGS 95, which was then increased to $780,000 a day later which would imply that a PSA 10 Curry National Treasures RPA is worth around $1.5 million, given the roughly two times multiplier that PSA 10 copies of these particular types of cards seem to enjoy. So it doesn't require too large of a leap of logic, given the timing of the Luca auction and the Curry buyout offer, to think that the prospective buyer of the Curry was motivated to action by that Luca sale. And moreover, upon surveying Instagram over the last few days, it seems like everyone in the hobby believes that their own collection value went up based on the astronomical price of that particular Luca RPA, which also naturally would imply that they are now willing to pay more for other cards too, since it wouldn't make sense for them to believe that that sale only drove up the value of their own cards, but not anybody else's. One would assume, but I think one would be mistaken. <laughs> and that said a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but... I do think one of the mechanisms that risk that that rises prices in the hobby is when there's an event that happens that causes everybody to in their own mind think that other card value should go up too. So Josh in your experience, how does the what's mine worth game play out in the hobby? Is it a wise way to approach valuing cards? I think it has mixed results. You know, I think um in some cases, it can be a pretty pretty uh, easy exercise. Like if you know a BGS 9.5 sells publicly and you have the exact same card in a PSA 10 like you pointed out, you can kind of just do the easy math and and proclaim like, okay, mine's probably worth, mine's gone up a little bit because the 9.5's gone up and we can just kind of make that easy assumption. The issue though is that a lot of these sales happen in one-off scenarios and they happen in a vacuum where these big sales occur, there's all these variables that made it happen are you going to be able to replicate that exact same thing with your similar or same card? And also the the one that was just purchased took a potentially took a buyer out of the pool because they now have their copy. And if you try to sell again, the second highest bidder, or in this case, the third highest bidder for the next auction may not be willing to go nearly as high and it'll go a lot lower. So it really just depends on the situation. I just I always get a chuckle out of the Instagram stories of, you know, oh, I saw the Luca. PSA 10 sale, what's that make my Luca status second year worth? And, you know, it's like, what? That's aren't related at all. There's no, so it's not, it's not like a, it's not a direct correlation to one sale rising all boats. I think it's more of a, a slow build towards something like that. But, 
it is kind of humorous to watch some of the stretches that we see. Yeah, and I think about last year, the incredible rise in price going into the December 25th NBA season start date that happened with Luca, Trey, Zion, everybody. And then the season started and like everybody calmed down quite a bit on the prospects. But what happened as a secondary effect was shortly after the NBA season started in January, February, March, Kobe, LeBron, and Jordan prices started going bananas as well as other vintage and established Hall of Fame caliber players. Um, and we'll get to that topic in just a second. Uh, but first, Christina, question for you. Yes. Given kind of how we see one younger player can move the needle for other players or their own, that player's own cards as well, other cards, how important are the prices of young prospects in terms of pushing up other prices across the board in the hobby? I mean, obviously we see that like correlation um this example that you gave of the staff but I, I and i think it is important to understand like if a collector is willing to bet on a prospect then like what would you pay for a sure thing that's already been proven um but i really like i don't care about this conversation (laughs) (laughs) like this whole like what's mine worth like based on like this say like when i see these posts like i usually just like mute the people because i'm just like i don't want to deal with your shenanigans anymore thank you must be a lot of muted accounts (laughs) i do i yeah you don't mute them from the card letter account no just just the christina's pc account card letter can't see any accounts Now you know why I don't follow anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no one is worthy of the card letter follow yet. Um, I mean, I just, you know, like like you said, like keep it to yourself. Like, I don't care what your card's worth unless you're selling it. And I only care if it's what it's worth if I'm trying to buy it. What fun is that? You know, I like to look at the card and enjoy the card itself. I don't care about the price tag. <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, last question. I'm gonna today's... get a lot of hate mail for. I that. don't. I actually don't think so. All right, last question on today's show. Uh, Josh, some might say that the ultimate winners of the "What's Mine Worth" game are the ones who collect the very best and established all-time great athletes. So, for example, when Mahomes goes up, Brady is sure to follow soon after. When Zion goes up, LeBron is likely to follow. Is this a fair assessment? That sort of the the real winners in this game are the ones who are collecting, as Christina pointed out, the players who are the actualized results of what prospects only have the potential of ascending to right now. And that ultimately people end up, whether their prospect achieves it or whether it's or they just go to the guy who's already achieved it, is, is it actually the, the, end, the, the, the final stage of this What's Mine Worth game is that it's the GOATs who ultimately are the beneficiaries of this? That was the longest question in the history of the show. I think you answered the question a couple times in there too. That was good. Uh, no, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty logical conclusion, right? Like the more, the more like young prospects, you know, are are in the limelight and they're they're performing. It just always kind of reminds you of like what they could be, and and then you make the logical jump over to, you know, their ceiling and their potential, and it's usually some other you know established player that's either currently playing or you know in the case of Jordan someone everyone's who's the next Jordan right 
And so and you can even do it with like guys like Curry. You know, when Trey Young started becoming more popular, I think people, uh, Curry collectors got more defensive of saying like, well, hey, Curry is basically already what you guys hope he ends up being and probably even a little bit better. And so it just kind of like continuously brings more attention and more collectors towards these high-end guys who are already more established and you don't have to worry as much about the prospects. But the, the prospects, I think to answer your previous question, kind of like fuel that fire continuously. And you always need to have that next, prospect to kind of keep the interest going and keep you know the keep the comparisons going it it always keeps those other guys front and center i just want to say um great point but i just want to say if the winners are the people who collect the goats then the losers are all of us for having to read these posts (laughs) what a great note to end on it's the christmas spirit (laughs) happy holidays from christina she is not reading your stories. And you she are... hates you if you post about I you never are... said that. I just said, <laughs> I don't want to hear you. <laughs> That's going to do it for episode 42, Sports Cards Culture. Have a great holiday break. See you guys next week.